Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Politically Depressed. As always, I'm your host, Eamon McAdam. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. If you've enjoyed these episodes and the work that I've been doing, consider heading over to patreon.com slash fire these times to make a donation of as little as $5 a month. It'll help this podcast grow, as well as the project around it, which supports many other podcasts from and for the periphery. Becoming a member of our Patreon also gives you access to a lot of really cool perks, such as an invitation to our monthly hangout, where you'd get to meet me as well as all the other cool creators of all the other podcasts, as well as early access and exclusive content. If you're unable to support us through Patreon, then there are still other ways that you can support this podcast. You can leave a review or a five-star rating wherever you listen to this episode. And yeah, I think that's about it. I hope you enjoy this episode. Ugh. Today's episode's gonna be a little difficult for me. Like with all my episodes, I hope that I make at least one coherent point. I've been feeling especially raw today. Like, really vulnerable. And, um... Yeah, I, I don't know. I've been crying on and off. And I can't really control it. You know? I really feel like I'm losing touch with, you know, my ability to even just control my emotions. I've also been feeling this really sharp pain in my heart, which is like literally heartache, but it feels so intense and it immobilizes me and I really can't do anything. I found myself like laying down for an hour, unable to do anything. This isn't what I want to talk about. I mean... I'm sure you can tell from the title that this is going to be a very different podcast in terms of what I've already talked about, but I just wanted to put you in the sort of a disclaimer, I guess. I don't know, shit's just fucked. Shit is fucked. I mean, from Gaza and the West Bank and southern Lebanon and Syria and northern Syria and Sudan. I don't know. It's just, it's too much... The only time that I'm able to just do stuff, like I'm not saying go out and party, I'm saying just do the dishes, I'm saying go do groceries, I'm saying go to a store or something, is when I'm kind of avoiding it, you know, avoiding thinking. And the problem with that is, is that the more I avoid, the more painful it is once it comes back into my mind, you know? I had this experience a few years ago where all of a sudden, you know, this is like a few years ago, but I was just sitting, I was on my computer, and I realized, fuck, I haven't thought about death for like four months. And then it it, it destroyed me. Because there's that feeling of like, fuck, I could have died, and I wasn't prepared. Or someone could have died, and I wasn't prepared because I didn't think about it, and I didn't process it. And so it's that like rushing back. And so I find myself kind of sitting, watching something, doing something. And then I remember, you know, people are starving in northern Gaza, that they're being starved, that there's this ongoing genocide, which many are calling just like Holocaust level atrocities, you know, they really do seem to want to kill all 2.4 million of them. And nothing's stopping them and no one's stopping them in the u.s which is just it's not just a supporter this is their genocide too god i don't know i, I don't want to get into this like you all know 
It's just so where I've been at vis-a-vis all those things is that I feel useless. And I think one thing where a lot of us are avoiding is confronting that uselessness. You know, for me, a lot of things end with death or like are connected with death. I do not want to die. It is an inevitability, however. And the only way that I'm going to like deal with it and confront it is to accept the fact that I am incapable of changing it, you know, or of stopping it. And I'm not saying that's the case in terms of like engaging in protests and and like pushing for a ceasefire, pushing for an end to the genocide. I'm not saying, you know, genocide is inevitable. That's definitely not what I'm saying. But there's a certain level of impotence that I think we're avoiding confronting that doesn't have to be that way. As in, that exact impotence that I'm describing isn't an inevitability. Okay, I think I jumped way ahead of myself. The reason that I've been thinking a lot about this these days is that it has been about, what, 139, 140 days of genocide? And it's not stopping. And there have been massive protests around the world. And they don't seem to be doing much. You know, if we take, like, very basic metrics, we can't even get a ceasefire. Like, there has been some shifts here and there in the UK and Australia and New Zealand in terms of the governments. But meaningfully, you know, there haven't been any real changes. And so I really think it is important to think about really seriously the tactics and the strategies that we've been employing and implementing and participating in and advocating for. I mean, I'll say first off that one of the main reasons that I myself go to these solidarity protests is because this is precisely one of the things that Palestinians in Gaza are asking of us, you know, and that's not something that I'm willing to ignore. And I will keep going and and I do value them and I see a lot of strength in them and potential, but I am worried that there is this kind of limiting uh, conception of protests as, you know, an ends. I see protests as a means to an ends, you know. It's complicated. There are different factors. I, like, there are different types of protests, and uh, there are some protests that in of themselves, you know, hold certain effects and change things, and there's a lot about visibility, and there's a lot about whatever, but this isn't going to be an episode where I dissect all the different types of protests and their effects and whatever. Like, there are books about this, and I'm sure they'll do it much better than I do. I will more focus just on solidarity protests that have that I've experienced. Especially as it's something that's kind of new for me, because, I don't know, the protests that I've been to in Lebanon were anti-government protests, you know? I've been to some solidarity protests there, but again, it's very different because protesting in solidarity with Palestinians in Lebanon is very different than protesting in solidarity with Palestinians in Europe. You know, I've never actually seen an Israeli flag until I got here because that's what it's like. You you protest, you're like 10, 20, 30 people, and then one dickhead with the Israeli flag comes and then it becomes like a conflict and whatever. There's also a huge difference where protests here are much more regulated. The one I went to about last week, the the trams were still running, you know? We weren't, like, blocking the roads. It's literally, like, our chants are registered with the cops. 
I don't know, that specifically, I really wonder about the effectiveness. The effectiveness, but also I've been contemplating, what is the intended effect? Are we trying to reach out to other people? Are we just trying to do this like aesthetic of like showing ourselves to people around us, to social media? I mean, I know there are Palestinians in Gaza who see these, you know, who are hopeful by these uh, sort of movements around the world. Is it to pressure the government? In Austria, the, the Austrian government has voted several times against a ceasefire. I think the Austrian government is one of the few that have also cut funding to UNRWA. And so there is definitely a need to like protest against that and be like, no. And, and some of the trends reflect that, you know, with shame on you. But yeah, I don't know. I just think the protest has its place, but it's not the end in itself. And I, I'm worried some people might think so. And I'm really worried about that because I think we've seen in so many cases that, you know, momentum dies out. Momentum has died out with a lot of these protests that I've been seeing, you know, that we've been seeing across Europe and in the US and across Asia and like in a lot of different contexts. I think part of that comes with a misunderstanding. You know, a lot of people go down and they expect it to be kind of instantaneous. We protest and then there's the fucking president on the windowsill and he's like, oh no, the people are rebelling. Okay, I better change policies. But obviously history moves much slower than that. But it's also like where we're starting from, you know? We don't have like a strong base. We're, we're like sometimes like 200, 300 people at these protests, like really not many. And we're not like a very powerful constituency, if you want, if you like that kind of language. You know, we're a huge minority in the country in terms of those that show up. But also we're a minority of minorities. Like, I'm very aware that a lot of the people I share the streets with whenever I go to these solidarity protests are refugees, are asylum seekers. A lot of Syrians, for example. And actually a lot of free Syrian flags, which I really appreciate. Also the first time that I've ever seen them live, which is particularly interesting. It was kind of a red flag in Lebanon because of, like, uh, Hezbollah would kick your ass, you know? They're, you'd instantly get into it. Like, People just knew, don't do it, which was really fucked. There is one thing about protest that I really value, which is its ability to connect people. Ever since I got to this country, I've been looking for queer lefty Arabs of my age, you know, which is quite niche, especially in Vienna with not a very big Arab population. And I've been meeting them through these protests, you know, I've been meeting people who it's kind of brings people together that are that share similar values, similar priorities, similar whatever. And I mean, like, there is definitely like a kind of social factor in terms of the loneliness and the feeling of I'm the only one that feels this way in the city, but then I go to these protests and no, I'm not the only one. But beyond that, I think the real political work that needs to be done, not just in solidarity with Palestine, not just in terms of pressuring the Austrian government to change its policies to whatever, but in general, in terms of political work against patriarchy, against capitalism, against imperialism, needs more than just protests. And it is the kind of post-protest thing. You meet, you gather, you sort of get to know each other, and then you do the actual work of organizing, which, again, is 
really complex and really based on respective contexts and like specific whatever is happening and where we're talking about and and even in the ones that I am a part of I have no idea I mean I'm really worried about the word organize because it's kind of one of those words that you hear a lot but what does it mean but I don't know what I kind of do a thought experiment I have is I pick something that is a good thing you know that I think is a good thing and then I think about and I research how did that come to be? Because there's this common notion that I really subscribe to, which is that power never commits suicide. That the way that people gained the rights for healthcare or to vote, it was never like some bougie elites where it's like, oh, let's give them healthcare. Like, no, these things were fought for and struggled for and people died for these things. And so one thing that I've been thinking about is the weekend. Everyone likes the weekend. Like the five-day week sucks, but it's much better than the six-day week and definitely much better than the seven-day week, you know? And yeah, you know, you read into that history or even the civil rights movement and it's like protests are a part of it, but there's also labor strikes. There's also civil disobedience. There's also direct action. And, and then there's also, you know, a lot of these things we discuss are within the category of nonviolent uh, movements you know, there are other tactics, there are other strategies, and I'm not advocating one way or the other. Like, that's something that's a bit difficult for me, actually, because, like I said in previous episodes, because of my legal status that I'm still not fully adjusted to, you know, as an immigrant in quite a surveilled and intense bureaucratic state like Austria... I feel like the panopticon is like I've internalized it, you know, like the state is in my head. And so literally when I think about anything where it's like a bit risky or a bit not, you know, possibly potentially illegal, like it's like a thought crime. I don't like that I'm going back to Orwell, but honestly, things feel like they're just returning to a kind of really basic dynamics. Anyway, whatever. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting off topic. But the point is, is that I think there are a lot of other tactics that can be employed and that the urgency, the stakes are way too high for us to still be doing the same tactics and expecting different results. And if not, I don't necessarily see that the tactics we are using, that people are employing, are fully thought out, you know, that there's an analysis there, that there's a... I hate the term theory of change because it's very NGO, but kind of like that. Like, so what is the point? What are we doing here? What are we trying to do here? And how are we measuring if it's a success or not? Is it just about how many people there are? But then like, what if everyone joins the protest and then nothing changes? Like, what's the day after? God, I'm going to quote Zizek now, so prepare yourself, but... um. Zizek has a thing about V for Vendetta, you know, that the film ends with the destruction of the British Parliament, and that's that. And he says, you know, I will sell my mother to slavery to see V for Vendetta too. What happens after the revolution? I sincerely apologize for anyone that was triggered by that Zizek impersonation. I don't know how well it comes across in audio format, because I, have to, I do do the... Uh, like the hands and everything. So I hope it was still palatable. But I think he has a point there. You know, I think we do have a lot of conceptions of 
the revolution as an aesthetic, but then that really boring, laborious, long-term, uh, and very risky engagements politically, organizing, the, the strikes, the mutual aid, the, um, I don't know, the actual process of building power. Because my main problem with protests, just of and in themselves, is it's kind of like we're all collectively asking the government to change. Or we're asking the state or something to change their ways. And yeah, what if they just don't? Like, what does escalation look like? Are we prepared for escalation? If not, how do we prepare ourselves? And even if we're not prepared, like, at least we know what we're not doing. At least we, there's like intent to the fact that we're doing this, because at the moment we can't do that. You know, like, I would never tell the people that are doing these um, solidarity protests to do anything risky, because a lot of them are in very, very precarious legal situations, and, you know, would risk deportation, and would risk arrest. But... Yeah, I think if there is any hope, if there is any potential in actually developing movements and building power that can be used to leverage, you know, that develops these mechanisms that would actually challenge the state, the government, whoever, it would need to be much more intentful. It would be much more organized. It would need to be much more studied you know, and like rooted in a kind of history. I don't know. I don't know, all this could be bullshit. But honestly, I am really worried that I'm going to these protests because I can't not. I'm really worried that I'm going to these protests and coming back home and feeling accomplished. When in fact, I don't think that I did accomplish anything. And it takes a lot of energy. It's exhausting. Especially, I mean... I have experienced police brutality in Lebanon, and it's still in my body. I get really triggered when I see cops, and being out on the streets, it's it's taxing on one's body, and um, that says nothing about, you know, people who literally just cannot go down on the streets, who are too precarious, or who, let's say, have physical disabilities, and are unable to join whatever. And so, I'm not sure if I've mentioned in a previous episode that in 2020, I wrote an essay called Depression and Revolution. And I was really inspired by an essay I had read called Sick Woman Theory, which starts with the sentence, how can I throw a brick through a bank window if I can't even get out of bed in the morning? And I mean, that's a vibe. And that's my vibe. And uh, I don't know, that's a real question. But also even for those who are getting out of bed, like they're not throwing bricks through bank windows. And all this to say, obviously protests do have their place. I would never advocate for people not to join these protests, especially these Palestine solidarity protests, but in general, other protests. Again, I just think that I'm not seeing the intent and I'm not seeing a reckoning with the intent and a reflection of why we're doing this. There's just kind of a reflexivity of that's what you do. And I wonder in a kind of way where it's like the energy that we are spending doing that, what is the stuff that we're choosing not to do? And 
again, that's for everyone, you know, in their own situation to think about. But I think it really is something that should be thought about more and considered and discussed. So that's been another episode of Politically Depressed. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And again, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash fire these times and make a donation of, as I said at the beginning, as little as $5 a month. And if you're not able to support us through Patreon, leave this podcast a review and a rating, and you would get all of my appreciation and love. And yes. So that's it for me, and I'll see you all next week. Bye.